Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a brand new podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I am Tiger Gao, Princeton sophomore and the director of outreach for undergraduate associates at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. As the U.S. and China engage in a trade war. What's the future for the business interactions between the two countries? How have the financial industries in the two countries responded to the changes that took place in the past few months? To discuss some of the issues related to China and U.S. trade war and the future for the two countries' relations, both in business and political terms, we have the distinct pleasure to welcome Mr. David Willard to our studio today. Mr. Willard is the founder, CEO, and managing partner at Fifty Two Capital Partners. The firm is an independent advisory firm that provides strategic advisory services on matters of transactions and acquisitions, especially China-related cross-border mergers and acquisitions transactions.、Uh, Mr. Willard is also an expert on strategic China matters. Mr. Willard studied Chinese when he was undergrad at Princeton University, and now he's a member of the National Committee on United States-China Relations, and also a researcher at the Council on Foreign Relations. So it's really nice to have you in the studio and have you be back on campus, Mr. Willard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tiger, thanks so much for having me back. This is such a great opportunity. It is so much fun to be back on campus. Thanks so much. Mr. Willard, before we jump into many of the questions on the macro landscape that I want to talk to you about today, would you mind first quickly giving us an overview on what cross-border M&A is? M&A stands for mergers and acquisitions, and what does this process usually entails? How might it be different for China and the U.S. compared to activities across other countries? And how does your firm, Fifty Two Capital Partners, play a role in all this? Well, those are great questions. Let me see if I can address them in turn.、Uh, first, in terms of cross-border M and A and what it usually entails, cross-border M and A is an especially challenging part of international finance. Cross-border M and A involves typically interaction with market participants who possess different. Uh, legal systems, regulatory frameworks, sometimes different languages, and with that, in navigating big mega mergers in foreign countries, there's an added level of complexity. That complexity makes deal ba- making in a cross-border context、uh, particularly challenging. That's especially the case with cross-border M&A with China. My firm, Fifty Two Capital Partners, is intimately involved in. Advising North American financial institutions and corporations in connection with mergers that involve China, those can be mergers which are outbound to China, or transactions inbound from China to North America. We advise on buy side transactions where we are、uh, working with buyers of targets in China. We also Advise clients on sell-side transactions. Clients who are you know, disposing assets or businesses to Chinese buyers. It's a really dynamic time. It's a really、uh, unique time in U.S.-China relations, and、uh, my firm is is very much a part of that. 
The first thing that came to my mind when I thought of cross-border M&A, this phrase, is the reverse mergers that happened after the financial crisis in 2008 between Chinese and U.S. companies. Um, and just to give our audience a quick overview, it's, that's basically the process where hundreds of Chinese firms basically right. took over defunct listed companies in the U.S., changed the name, changed mm -hmm. the name of the IPO, easily went public, mm -hmm. and actually those companies didn't really have values mm -hmm. because it would be way harder for them to actually go public in the U.S. with due process. So mm -hmm. obviously this is not the only type of MIA deals that is going on right now. Um, how has the environment changed since that period of time? What kind of deals usually take place nowadays, uh, usually in what sectors? Those, uh, what great questions, Tiger. Let me address those in turn. In, in terms of the environment and how it's changed, it's such a good point you're raising from – you know, 10 years ago, around the time of the financial crisis, and you rightly point out, reverse mergers were a key part of the market in the United States. You had many Chinese firms looking for access to U.S. capital markets. We have very liquid capital markets in the United States. And Chinese businesses saw that as an opportunity to gain ready capital from a fairly robust, liquid financial system. With that, obviously, you know, as you alluded to, uh, a lot of those companies were purely shell companies, not backed by hard assets and operations in China and led to a lot of uh, litigation and, uh, and scandals. The market today is um, uh, robust, but the pace of activity and cross-border M&A with China has abated from several years ago. In 2016, we had massive amounts of inbound mergers and acquisitions in the United States. Those inbound deals from China to the U.S. were typically in areas of real estate, media and entertainment, lodging, um, sports. Um, you could call them you know, non-infrastructure-related M&A investments. That was the, a core part of the market. You know, two to three years ago, there were massive volumes of M&A deal flow coming in from China. It was an incredibly robust market, and those M&A deals – typically had a high probability of success around that time as well. There was less regulatory scrutiny in the United States. Um, so from a deal execution standpoint, cross-border M&As uh, you know, several years ago had both a higher level of deal certainty and occurred in, in great volumes. Today, the market's different. The environment has changed. Uh, cross-border M&A from China has decreased in volumes. And in terms of the sectors involved, today, inbound China M&A um, – is, is less likely to show up in the realms of you know, real estate, lodging, media entertainment, sporting, et cetera. Um, instead, inbound M&A interest from China today um, typically revolves around infrastructure-related um, investment opportunities. Those include um, prospective M&A in energy, utilities, um, uh, infrastructure, other um, critical uh, energy utility-related investments. That's a shift from several years ago. Um, China's domestic regulatory policies have played a part in that. Uh, China has implemented a series of uh, regula regulations domestically that have curbed outbound investment in, quote-unquote, you know, irrational investments, those investments in lodging and hotels and real estate, sporting clubs, movies, etc. And China has placed a premium on investments in infrastructure-related um, assets. 
so that is a major shift in the environment um, in terms of where we see inbound M&A deals coming from China. The sectors have changed. The focus has changed. And with that, interestingly enough, Tiger, there has been heightened regulatory scrutiny in the United States of those inbound M&A deals. Um, inbound M&A deals from China that focus on energy and infrastructure and utilities can often implicate considerations and deliberations around, you know, uh, U.S. national security and defense, uh, etc. U.S. regulators in Washington, D.C. Um, pay very close attention to inbound deals from China that involve those sectors. It's a really interesting dynamic we're seeing with inbound M&A from China today. There's a heightened level of scrutiny, and with that, the overall volume of M&A from China has has gone down uh, from two or three years ago. It's very, very complex, and it's critical for senior management teams to understand their options. What are their options? What is the probability of successfully closing mega mergers that involve a Chinese enterprise? And from a regulatory standpoint, what ground game do M&A deal makers need to build in advance to make sure their deals can get across the finish line? You mentioned how both the frequency and complexity of the type of M&A deals we're seeing these days have really increased significantly in the past few years. Would you mind giving us a few specific examples on deals that you worked on or any people you've talked to at some point that could really illustrate such change? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great question. I'm glad you're raising it. And, you know, obviously, without getting into the details of specific uh, transactions, I can give you some general um, general examples that just highlight what we've been seeing in the market. It's a really fascinating time uh, in cross-border M&A. And I, I think, Tiger, one of the biggest innovations we're seeing now in cross-border M&A deal-making with China is that <clears throat> North American acquirers in sizing up deals in China are conducting greater levels of what I call front-end due diligence. That front-end due diligence consists of greater analysis and scrutiny of the regulatory environment in China. Market participants in North America want to know from Chinese regulators on the front end what the probability of success will be in getting a deal done in, in China. M&A dealmakers in China want to know, similarly in the U.S., what is this deal going to entail from a regulatory standpoint in the U.S.? On the front end, Chinese acquirers want to know how Scythius in the United States will size up a large deal that's coming to America. That's a major innovation. It's very different from several years ago uh, where there was less front-end due diligence of regulatory considerations in M&A. The cost of doing M&A deals is exorbitant. Transaction fees and expenses are very high. Cross-border mega-mergers that involve China involve lots of time, analysis, the use of advisors, fees, costs, expenses. It's a massive undertaking to conduct a cross-border M&A deal that involves China or has a nexus to China. And with that, buyers say on the front end, how is this deal going to shake out? Is this just a non-starter from the get-go? How are regulators going to respond to this? And if the answer on the front end, Tiger, is, well, CFIUS will likely 
block this deal. There's, in fact, there's an 80% probability that CFIUS will block this deal. M&A dealmakers on the front end are saying, we're just not going to take that risk. It's too expensive. So we're just going to go pencils down early. We're seeing more of that front end due diligence. It's a really innovative um, strategy that a lot of dealmakers are undertaking. Another innovation is with the advent of new domestic regulatory measures in China that affect M&A, Chinese buyers are seeking innovative ways of structuring deals that involve North America. Those innovative deal-making measures include you know, structuring entities in a way that circumvent certain capital control requirements in China. That can involve incorporating new overseas subsidiaries or restructuring entities in China that, that allow for greater latitude and flexibility in acquiring assets in North America. So we're seeing with greater amounts of regulatory policies and measures in China, a concomitant increase in innovation and uh, deal-making measures to find creative ways of getting around those regulations. That's a new development from three or four years ago. Following your trend of thought based on regulatory scrutiny, unfortunately, we're seeing rising tension in U.S.-China relations nowadays. And I know you haven't given this presentation, which will happen this afternoon in Princeton's East Asian Studies Department, um, but I'm fortunate enough to get an advanced copy of your presentation. And in it, you mentioned that there are reduced cross-border activities and higher regulatory scrutinies. And you also mentioned that the, the U.S. often cite national security reasons when they block deals, like how they blocked Alibaba from buying MoneyGram. And actually, meanwhile, Chinese regulators are actually trying to control capital outflow. So you've got tightening on both sides of the spectrum. And so what are some of the policy implications we're seeing nowadays? And do you think the regulations will even be tighter in the near future? That's an excellent question. I wish I had the crystal ball (laughs) tiger that could... (laughs) Uh, indicate to me where the market is headed and where the regulators are, are headed. Unfortunately, I don't. I can only look at the probabilities of where I see things. And I would say there's a, in the near term, a high probability that we'll continue to see heightened regulatory scrutiny of inbound China M&A deals and U.S. M&A deals in China. The, the regulatory environment today is quite tight. The scrutiny has increased, sanctions and tariffs abound, and so I believe in the next 6 to 12 months we'll we'll likely see a high probability of further regulatory tightening and scrutiny of, of outbound deals. That's not to say that companies should not be thinking about M&A deals. They should. It's just that in terms of executing M&A deals in a cross-border setting, it will be really, really challenging. CFIUS, in particular, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, is uh, part of uh, the U.S. Treasury and the executive branch of the United States. That is uh, a committee that is charged with reviewing major uh, cross-border investments, mergers and acquisitions that implicate considerations of U.S. national security. And to your your point, there have been a series of blocked M&A deals from China in 2018 that have come across CFIUS, and CFIUS has said, no, we just we want to have this uh, deal um, take a back seat for the moment. I think we'll see a high probability of that continuing. 
I think um, there is some uh, probability that um, we'll, we'll see China and the, in the U.S. say 18 to 24 months down the line uh, reducing uh, scrutiny, but that's going to be contingent upon the willingness of leaders in both countries uh, dis- dispelling or getting rid of some of this um, heated rhetoric that we're seeing around tariffs and sanctions. Um, any sort of um, increase in cross-border M&A activity, from my standpoint, requires cooperation from a policy-making standpoint and a recognition by regulators in both the U.S. and China that to get good deals done in this market, um, regulators need to see the advantages of opening up the market, reducing scrutiny where, uh, where uh, necessary, and ensuring that commercial participants can continue to interact with each other. And trade and commerce are critically important to the United States and China. It seems from what you just said, there seems to be a disconnect between what the private sector hopes and what the regulators are having in mind. Um, and I, would you mind speaking a little bit more to, to that part of the... the sure. Story? That's a great question. And I think the, the headlines uh, say it all. Um, we don't necessarily need to look to, uh, you know, investment bankers or Fortune 100 CEOs to recognize that this is a unique period in time in U.S.-China relations. We are at uh, an interesting period that involves a greater level of tension in the bilateral relationship. There have always been areas of uncertainty in U.S.-China relations. I believe, and this is I think a consensus view today that those uncertainties have increased in number and in magnitude. And to your great point, Tiger, I believe that there is an interesting paradox today. That paradox consists of a recognition that, number one, in the policymaking realm, there is a great level of suspicion and distrust. The paradox, from my standpoint, is that in the private sector in the United States and China, we are seeing still lots of interaction and engagement and in dialogue and deal-making. And among private sector executives, include, including companies in North America that my firm advises, there continues to be sustained engagement and dialogue. Private sector executives in the U.S. and China recognize that there are ever-present risks of intellectual property infringement, data privacy issues, etc. However, good deals continue to get done, and the private sector, in contrast to the public sector, remains excited about opportunities for our economies to continue to interact in prosperous ways. It's a really interesting paradox we're seeing in the market. This is vastly different from, say, Uh, five or six years ago in the market. I believe that one of the great challenges today for the private sector in the United States and China is to step up, if you will, and to be a voice for sustained engagement and dialogue between our countries. We're at an important period in time in U.S.-China relations, and it's important for businesses and executives in both countries to realize that setting aside the government issues and the politics at a trade level and a deal-making level, we can still find success 
and mutually beneficial opportunities in the marketplace. It's really important for the private sector to continue to do that. Since there is such a disconnection between what the private sector wants and what the politicians hope to achieve, are you optimistic about how China-U.S. relationship will shape up in the next few years, at least under the Trump administration, let's say specifically? Because obviously when we talk about U.S. and China nowadays, it seems that trade war is an essential topic to mention. Uh, but do you think it's heading towards something even bigger, even more ideological? For example, um, how Vice President Mike Pence is kind of hinting at a, a Cold War. Sure. Those are, those are great questions. And <clears throat> I, I think in terms of the trade war we've been seeing the past couple of years, I, I see the trade war abating in the next few years, interestingly. And perhaps that's a minority view, but I believe that both countries are realizing that engaging in ongoing you know, tariff measures, protectionist regulatory measures are not really constructive to the bilateral relationship. We've had a series of uh, tariffs over the past uh, few years that have um, disrupted financial and capital markets in both countries. Volatility in our respective securities markets has increased substantially, and that is attributable in part to an onslaught of tariffs in both countries and trade barbs happening with greater frequency. Um, I believe that um, in the next six to 12 months, uh, the trade war uh, will abate. I think there's a high probability of that. I think both countries recognize that there's a tiring effect of uh, engaging in these types of uh, tactical tariff maneuvers. Um, I believe that at the end of the day, uh, the U.S. and China recognize that we are both here for the long haul. And when it comes to issues of trade, sustainability, the environment, the climate, and prosperity, the 21st century requires cooperation by the U.S. and China. In terms of, you know, the and, and Tiger, you mentioned at the recent comments about you know, are we entering into a new Cold War? I, I'm not a big fan of... Uh, labels when it comes to attempts to describe U.S.-China relations. I think it's convenient to try to search back into history for labels to describe the current period we're in in U.S.-China relations. And the Cold War is a convenient term that was used for a number of decades to describe the relationship between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, I believe the relationship today between the United States and China is singularly unique, and that relationship is vastly different from the relationship that the U.S. had with the Soviet Union during the actual Cold War. <laughs> today in China, uh, Chinese uh, kids watch LeBron James basketball games and go to McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I'm giving just uh, short examples just to illustrate that our economies and our cultures have become intertwined inextricably in ways that are, were unfathomable four decades ago. And we now have great interdependence economically. And so <clears throat> back to my point, Tiger, about labels, I believe that terms like 
Cold War or Cool War or Hot Peace. They're really just labels and not truly um, constructive characterizations of the reality of U.S.-China relations. I believe we are at a, an important test in our relationship. I believe we will pass that test in, in uh, short term to medium term. But the, the notion that we somehow are entering into this um, sort of isolated relationship for a protracted period of time, commensurate with the, the Soviet <laughs> relation we had during the Cold War, I think that's a misplaced characterization and not entirely constructive. Um, I believe there are issues that absolutely need to be addressed between the United States and China. Those include intellectual property issues, data privacy, force transfers of technology, um, issues around defense, issues around security in the Asia-Pacific. Those are critically important issues that necessitate cooperation by our countries. That's always been the case, and we need to have that going forward. But to say that somehow our relationship has devolved into something analogous to, you know, 1955 U.S.-Soviet relations is, um, is not entirely constructive. What are some of the other players in the field of cross-border M&A activities, especially in China and the U.S.? Because I know there are a lot of China-based companies that help state-owned banks and enterprises to go uh, public overseas, and obviously there are also big international cross-border investment banks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and those banks have an establishment in China. And there are also firms like 52 Capital Partners that are independent advisors, um, boutique advisory firms. So how would you categorize the differences between these type of players in this advisory game? And do you think boutique advisory firms often have an edge over a lot of the big firms? Wow, that's a great question and um, so many different ways of of tackling it, Tiger. I think in terms of the market today, you mentioned different types of advisory firms. There are so many advisory firms and investment banks globally that have a nexus to China. And that is a reflection of a recognition among Wall Street executives that China is a massive consumer market. China has massive opportunity for capital market participants, private equity firms, and other deal makers in seeking opportunities in China. That continues today. That's always been the case, but it really continues today. And it's really important. In terms of boutique M&A advisory firms, there's been a lot of disruption in financial services. And boutique advisory firms today that don't have the legacy infrastructure of the large banks are capitalizing on new technological innovations in scaling their businesses. My firm is based in Silicon Valley. A lot of our due diligence systems, data systems, are reflections of the latest, greatest, most cutting-edge technologies that Silicon Valley can offer. We don't have 30, 40, 50, 100 years of history to our name. And with that, we can leapfrog a lot of the years of, uh, call it growing pains, in terms of building out and maturing infrastructure and data systems internally. We are using artificial intelligence, tech-enabled services, and tech products to optimize our systems and serving our clients internationally. I believe, interestingly enough, that advisory firms of the boutique sort can play a very important collaborative role with the large financial institutions. 
large financial institutions with a presence in China often lack deep China expertise in their large organizations. The organizations are vast, and there's a lack of really, really specific, high-quality expertise with respect to you know, a particular region like China. Boutique advisory firms can play an instrumental and collaborative role with the large Wall Street investment banks. My firm, 52 Capital Partners, is being welcomed, <laughs> interestingly, by the large financial institutions because there's a recognition that a boutique advisory firm that has deep China expertise can play a really valuable role to the clients of large financial institutions that otherwise have historically lacked that deep, deep China expertise. I believe, on the one hand, yes, there's been disruption in financial services with the emergence of new boutique advisory firms. On the other hand, boutique advisory firms can play an integral role in collaborating with the large institutions in finding new opportunities for M&A deal-making in China. We're seeing that with my firm, 52 Capital Partners. Peer firms of ours are also playing uh, similar roles, not just in China, but in other regions like Europe or Africa, Asia, Southeast Asia, or Latin America. And I think that's a great development for uh, global commerce and the economies and financial services. So it's, it's a really interesting time. And uh, we, to answer your other question, Tiger, my firm works on both buy-side and sell-side M&A transactions. There are an equal number of opportunities on the buy-side and sell-side in this market. Um, I believe the market remains strong, notwithstanding a reduction in cross-border M&A activity with China. The market is still there. Good deals will get done. Market participants are building a ground game. There's excitement about new innovations and products coming into the market, particularly in software and technology in Silicon Valley and parts of China. Just following that third of thought, um, you mentioned how the cross-border M&A activities seem to reduce a bit these days. Um, it seems that the private equity in the industry in China and other emerging markets have really been picking up and maturing in the past few years. Do you plan to work on um, actually investing and doing a lot of bicep work in China one day? I know, <laughs> I believe you are raising a fund right now. How? What, what do you think is so fascinating about um, advisory work? You mentioned mm -hmm. banking work that attracted you to do that mm -hmm. um, rather than early on pursuing some career in private equity. Or maybe you plan to obviously be very flexible in switching. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and I would say a couple of things on that tiger. I'm glad you're raising it. You know, in terms of you know buy side work in China from a principal investing standpoint, there are ripe opportunities for private equity firms in China. There are attractive valuations in China today for buy side firms. Those attractive valuations are particularly the case in non technology verticals. That's a really important development that continues to be the case. My firm, 52 Capital Partners, presently we do M&A advisory work, uh, Tiger. That's our focus. We do uh, buy-side transactional advisory work as well as sell-side M&A advisory work. You mentioned uh, private equity work. Yes, with this attractive financing environment, capital continues to be raised. Private equity firms are flush with capital. Uh, the interest rate environment is still very attractive. Uh, the cost of capital is, is still 
uh, attractive on a historical basis and capital continues to be raised. Capital is a commodity today. Private equity firms have raised extraordinarily large funds in anticipation of finding really attractively priced valuations in the market in the next you know, two to three years. We'll continue to see lots of activity in China. My firm will continue doing our M&A advisory work. That is our core bread and butter. We're very active in the market. In addition to that, we are seeking to uh, raise uh, capital and put together uh, a fund in 2019. I think the timing is a little bit in flux. We'll have to see what the market looks like in the next six to nine months. But the timing is ripe for putting together capital and finding opportunities in North America and China. Um, I think there's some probability of you know, the interest rate environment becoming less attractive in the next, you know, nine to 12 months. And private equity firms are, are aware of that. And with that, a lot of capital is being raised still to this day in anticipation of there being um, potentially a more difficult capital raise environment in, in, say, a year from now. So it's a really uh, ripe time for deploying capital in China. I think the valuations are comparatively attractive in China. Clients we advise who have buy-side platforms in China see great opportunities in the mainland and uh, they will continue to see opportunities in the next, you know, six to 12 months. Since our show's name is Policy Punchline, I really have to ask you, what is the punchline for the policy discussion here? What <laughs> should be our main takeaway or mindset we should be having looking at issues related to cross-border M&A activities and uh, future chi- of China-U.S. relation? What is the punchline here? The punchline. Well, Tiger, I'll, I, I think an appropriate policy punchline, if I may offer one, is this. And this policy punchline encapsulates both cross-border M&A with China and U.S.-China relations. And the punchline is this. Make cooler heads prevail. (laughs) Make cooler heads prevail. I believe cooler heads will prevail. Now we are in a unique time in U.S.-China relations. It's a more tense time than a number of years ago. But I believe that in showing these various issues and grievances, both countries are recognizing that we have an extraordinary amount in common. Our economies are inextricably intertwined. We are interdependent. We need to cooperate. And aspirations of both countries need to converge to find ways to achieve success and prosperity in the coming decades ahead. And it's imperative for the U.S. and China not just policymakers, but also M&A dealmakers to find those opportunities for collaboration going forward. We need engagement. We need strategic economic engagement and dialogue in the 21st century. The U.S. and China are the two biggest powers in the world today, and that will continue to be the case in the 21st century. We need cooperation. So policy punchline, Tiger, would be with respect to cross-border M&A and U.S.-China relations, may cooler heads prevail, and I believe they will. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. 
Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.